As we come to the subject that we are going to be considering in this message on the differences between Islam and Christianity, allow me to make four introductory comments before we jump into the details of the message. First of all, introductory comment number one, I do not claim to be an expert or a scholar on Islam. However, I have studied it and am very familiar with it and have had the opportunity and privilege to minister in some Muslim countries and talk with workers, uh, outreach partners in those areas, etc. So, uh, though not a scholar or an expert on it, very, very familiar with it. I certainly know enough about it to know that whether you are talking about the Islamic extremist position or even the moderate Muslim position, the differences between it and biblical Christianity are such that the two cannot be seen as related to one another as many moderate Muslims in our country try to imply. I will say more about that issue later. Second introductory comment, there are far more differences between Islam and Christianity than the ones I will mention in this message. Far more. For example, we could spend the entire message talking about the differences between the Bible and the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam. But for the sake of time, I have chosen to highlight what I think are four of the most significant differences. Thirdly, third introductory comment, in a proper desire, and I have the word proper underlined in my notes, in a proper desire to protect Muslims who had no part in the 9-11 terrorism attacks or who have no interest in terrorism, in a proper desire to protect Muslims in that category, many Muslims and non-Muslims are saying things today about Islam which simply cannot be backed up by facts in history or facts in the Quran itself. It is a fact that at many, many times throughout history, Islam has conquered with the sword, has treated women barbarically, and has tolerated absolutely no religious dissent. This has not been the rare exception, contrary to what a lot of people are saying today. It is also a fact that there are are over 100 verses in the Quran advocating the use of violence to spread Islam. Examples of the the requirement of of violence against non-Muslims are so numerous, both in the Quran and in Islamic tradition, that the point is beyond question, though that is often denied today in the media. Fourthly, in light of that previous statement, my goal in this message is not to present something that can be used as an excuse politically or religiously to justify hatred against Muslims or mistreatment of Muslims. In fact, that is the exact opposite of my desire. My goal is for us to see the truth of God on this issue, which has eternal ramifications. After all, the rightness or wrongness of any religion is not based on the action of its followers. It is based upon its adherence to God's truth. So with that as background, let's begin our comparison. The starting point of our contrast is going to be the issue of divine revelation. Both Islam and Christianity believe that God has spoken 
and that God has communicated to mankind and has revealed His will to mankind. Islam believes that the pinnacle, the climax, the culmination of God's revelation is found in Muhammad. Here's a quote from an an Islamic spokesman. Quote, Muslims believe that the message which which was revealed to Prophet Muhammad is in its comprehensive, complete, and final form. This message originated from Adam, and then Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and all the prophets in between conveyed the same message to the humankind. God completed the message in its final form through the prophet Muhammad, end quote. There are two very significant aspects of that quote. Number one, it reveals the fact that Islam believes that the pinnacle, the climax, the the culmination of God's revelation is found in Muhammad. Secondly, the statement implies and indicates that Islam is not a religion contrary to Christianity, but rather is a continuation of of or an extension of Christianity. There are numerous passages in the New Testament, however, which make it clear that such cannot be the case. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hebrews over near the end of the New Testament, and we'll begin our time in the Word in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Notice how the writer of Hebrews opens his letter. He says in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, (coughs) who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This passage is crystal clear that the pinnacle, the climax, the culmination of God's revelation is his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says God has spoken in various ways down through the centuries. He communicated his truth through dreams and visions and angels and voices from heaven and prophets. But the writer of Hebrews says here, the the pinnacle, the climax, the culmination was Jesus. There is no higher form of revelation than him. There can't be another prophet who supersedes him as Islam claims. How can you supersede God the Son? You can't. He is the express image of the Father because He is equal with the Father in essence and in substance and in deity. Here He is called the heir of all things. He was involved in the work of creation with the Father. He upholds creation. He purged our sins. And then He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because He accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because that is the place of power and authority and honor. He is the sovereign Lord who rules from heaven. And one day he will will return to this earth 
to rule. That is the message of the New Testament. What more can be added to that message? Nothing. That is the climax and culmination, not the words of Muhammad. Look at Jude, chapter, uh, Jude, there's only one chapter, verse 3. Keep turning to the right. You find the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. It's just prior to the book of Revelation. Jude, verse 3. <clears throat> Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, in other words, Jude said, that was my original intent and desire. However, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which, had, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice that last phrase. The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. It was delivered in the person of Jesus and the New Testament writings about him. There is nothing more. The faith has been once for all delivered. In fact, in the original text, the, the wording is, is that way. The once for all delivered to the saints' faith. It has been once for all delivered. Look at the next book, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. The very last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty-two eighteen says, <clears throat> For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Needless to say, that is a serious warning. Don't add anything to this book. Now someone might say, well, that's just talking about the book of Revelation. Yes, but the book of Revelation is the culminating book of the New Testament. So if you add anything to the Bible like the Koran or the Book of Mormon or whatever else, you are adding it, in essence, to the Book of Revelation. So one of the major differences between Islam and Christianity is this issue. Islam teaches that the revelation given to Muhammad was a continuation of God's revelation which began back in the Old Testament. But the New Testament says that absolutely cannot be. Nothing can be added to the pinnacle of revelation found in Jesus and the New Testament writings about him. Secondly, a second major difference between Islam and Christianity revolves around the proper view of God. As you probably know, the God of Islam is Allah. Muslims will often say Allah is simply the Arabic word for God and therefore the God of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is the same God. But the question arises, if Allah is simply the Arabic word for God, and it is the Arabic word for God, but if it is simply the Arabic word for God, then why do Muslims who speak other languages than Arabic not use the word for God in that language to refer to their God? You see, Islam insists that the term Allah be used to refer to their God. In fact, it would be blasphemy to call the Muslim's God anything but Allah. That's because Allah, the God of Islam, and Yahweh, the God of the Old and New Testaments, are not the same God. There are major differences. For example, Allah is one person. 
Yahweh is a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Allah loves the lovable. Yahweh loves sinners. The Quran says in Surah 61.4, Allah loveth those who battle for His cause. It says in Surah 2.195, Allah loves the beneficent. Allah loves those who have a care for cleanness. Surah 2, 2.22. Allah loves the steadfast and those whose deeds are good. Surah 3, 146 and 147. By contrast, the Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a major difference between Allah and the God of the Bible. In fact, there isn't Catch this, there isn't even one listing for love in the index of the popular Marmaduke Pickthall translation of the Koran. Not one listing for love. This afternoon, a friend of mine here in our congregation who used to be a Muslim and is now a believer in Jesus Christ emailed me, and he said one of the major turning points for him was when he was talking to a Christian man and he asked this Christian man, he said, well, what do you Christians do or what is your perspective? What do you, how should you handle it if a Christian turns from Christianity to Buddhism or Islam or some other religion? And he said he was shocked by the answer because this Christian rightly answered and said, oh, we would be very concerned for him and we would want to reach out to him. He's lost his way and we would want to encourage him and exhort him and see if we can get him back on track because he's gotten off track. This former Muslim said, I was shocked because in Islam, it's very clear what you do. If someone leaves Islam, we are commanded to kill them. He said, that was the beginning of the turning point that opened my eyes that the God of Islam and the God of the Bible are not the same God. The God of Islam is a distant God. The God of the Bible loves sinners and actually came to this earth to live among sinners when Jesus became a man. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, for very familiar words to most of you. John, chapter 1. Verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here in the opening verse of his gospel, the Apostle John uses the term the Word to refer to Jesus. John uses that term because Jesus came to this earth bringing the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, modeling the Word of God, and embodying the Word of God. He is the very Word of God because He is the very essence of God. That's what this verse is saying. Jesus was in existence before there was a beginning of time because Jesus is eternal. And though He is equal in essence with God the Father, He is not the same person as God the Father. The middle of this verse says he was with God, showing he was a distinct and is a distinct person from God the Father. He was in existence before there was a beginning of time, and he has always been with God the Father because he himself is God, as the last phrase of the verse says. He is the Word incarnate, as John says down in verse 14. He says in verse 14, of this Word, the Word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son became a man. But he was no mere man. He wasn't only a man. Because verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, in your translation, may say uh, the only begotten God or the only begotten Son. It's clearly a reference to Jesus, whichever your translation has. The only begotten Son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus showed us the Father when He became a man. He became a man to redeem sinful mankind. This is the whole issue that Paul deals with in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Jesus willingly left heaven's glory to become a man so that he might redeem sinful mankind. God the Son became incarnate. That is a blasphemous assertion in Islam. In Islam, Allah could never become incarnate to redeem mankind. Allah is merely the judge of mankind. But according to the Bible, no man has to face God as judge if that man will respond to him as Savior. In Islam, every human being will one day stand before Allah as judge. In Christianity, only those who refuse to repent and receive Christ will have to face God as judge. Those who have surrendered to Christ will face God as Father, not judge. So Islam and Christianity are an eternity apart when it comes to the issue of the proper view of God. Difference number three that we're going to highlight. A third major difference between Islam and Christianity is the issue of the path of salvation. How can a man or woman be saved and delivered from eternal condemnation? I mean, what's more important than that? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In other words, what else really matters if you end up spending eternity in hell? What else really matters? The path of salvation, according to Islam, is composed of what they call the five pillars of Islam. Number one is shahada, or the declaration of faith. Here's a quote. To become a Muslim, this is a quote from a Muslim who who passed this on to me. To become a Muslim, one needs to declare, I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship except God and that Muhammad is his servant and messenger. The prophethood of Muhammad obligates the Muslims to follow his exemplary life in every respect. End quote. In other words, to become a Muslim, you have to declare that no one is worthy of worship except Allah, not even Jesus. Allah alone is worthy of worship, and Muhammad is his representative who should be, must be followed. That's number one. Number two, second pillar in Islam, number two on the path of salvation is salat, or prayers. Muslims are required to pray five times a day as a duty toward God. These Prayers, these five prayers, are to be offered to Allah while facing Mecca. Number three on the path of salvation is zakat, or giving to the poor. Giving of alms, giving of finances. Number four is siyam, or fasting. Here's another quote. Muslims fast every day during the month of Ramadan in the Arabic calendar. This means 
abstention from food, drink, and sex, from dawn to dusk, and curbing all evil intentions and desires, end quote. And then number five on the path of salvation is hajj or pilgrimage. Muslims have to visit the Kaaba in Mecca at least once in a lifetime, provided one has the means to undertake the journey. These are the five pillars of Islam. This is what you have to do to have any chance of salvation. Now, beloved, that is in stark contrast to the biblical view of salvation. Look at Romans chapter 4. You're in John now. Skip Acts and go to Romans chapter 4. Paul says, beginning in verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh, or our father according to the flesh has found, depending on your translation? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's a quote right out of Genesis 15, verse 6, the great Old Testament statement of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, notice this, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or credited for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It could not be any clearer than that. Salvation or or justification does not come by works. In fact, Paul says here it can't come by works. It can only be received by faith in humility and repentance as a gift. Look at the next chapter of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified, of course, means to be declared Righteous. We are declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. You know this. You know this doctrine. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, according to the Bible, is not a reward for human works or human effort, human striving, or human merit. It cannot be earned. Our debt of sin is far too great to ever be overcome by any human means, by any human deeds. The only way it can be dealt with is to have it washed away by the blood of Christ. So Islam 
and biblical Christianity are an eternity apart when it comes to the issue of the path of salvation. And that leads to the fourth major difference that we want to consider in this message, and that is the difference concerning the possibility of certainty of salvation. The possibility of certainty of salvation. A while back, I attended a luncheon at which a Muslim gentleman spoke on behalf of Islam. He was an official representative of Islam. And I went to this luncheon, and he gave his presentation, and he gave his email address in case anyone in the audience wanted to interact with him further. So I took his email address, and I emailed him afterwards to ask him a question. Here is an exact quote of what I asked him. I will read to you my exact email, word for word, and his exact response, word for word. Here was my email to him. I said, in Islam, is there any guarantee of heaven? In other words, is there any way a Muslim can have absolute assurance that he will spend eternity in heaven with God? Here's the response I received from the gentleman, verbatim. Nothing added to this quote, nothing subtracted. This is word for word. Here it is. He said, quote, In Islam, we believe that only God knows who will go to heaven, and he is the only one who alone decides on this matter. We believe that no one can go to heaven without the mercy and grace from God. Even Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that he himself does not expect to go to heaven without the mercy and grace from God. However, Islam teaches us that by being obedient to the commandments of God and leading a life that is in confirmation with the way prescribed by God, at least we can hope to have a better chance of getting the mercy and grace from God on the day of judgment. Continuing the quote now, he says, Islam also teaches us that only good deeds will not earn the heaven. It is only the grace of the God that can earn the heaven for any individual. Good deeds, being obedient to the commandments of God, increase the chance of getting God's mercy and grace. So the bottom line is we believe that we need to continue our struggle to lead a life that is prescribed by God, continue our good deeds, enjoy the good, and forbid the evil, and obey God's commandments. These actions give us the hope that God will be kind and pleased, and in the process, we would be able to get his grace and mercy. Now here's the closing line of his, of his paragraph that he sent to me. Closing line, word for word. There is no free lunch, so we have to work to earn God's grace, end quote. That's it. The best you can do is hope. Work to earn God's grace and hope for the best. Hope, and I'm not being facetious when I say this, and hope that the day you happen to die and you stand before Allah, hope he's in a good mood and he will extend mercy and grace to you. Contrast that with what the Apostle John said 
in 1 John 5. Turn over to near the end of the New Testament to 1 John chapter 5. Verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Beloved, it is not presumptuous. Please hear this. It is not presumptuous or prideful to say that you know with absolute certainty that you are going to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. In fact, I would add this. If you believe it is presumptuous, if you believe it is prideful, it reveals the fact that you believe that your salvation is somehow dependent upon your goodness or your good works. If our eternity in heaven depends upon our goodness, then yes, it is extremely presumptuous and prideful to say, I know with certainty I'm going to heaven, because that's saying, I know I am good enough. I've really done it. I've, hit, I've knocked it out of the park. I am, I am certain that I have done all that needs to be done. But it doesn't depend on our goodness. We cannot earn God's grace. We cannot work for our salvation. We don't have to simply hope because our eternal destiny depends upon the perfect righteousness of someone else, namely Jesus Christ. According to verse 12 here, If you have Jesus in your life as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. You don't have to hope for it. You don't have to wish for it. You don't have to wait and see. You have eternal life. And flip that coin over. If you don't have Jesus in your life as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't have eternal life. You can hope all you want to, and it's not going to do any good. You can work at it all you want to, and it's not going to do any good. You can wish for it all you want to, and it's not going to do any good. You can try every avenue you want to try. It's not going to do any good. You will never have eternal life by your goodness, by your deeds, by your merit. Thus, the message of Islam and the message of biblical Christianity are world's apart. In fact, they are an eternity apart. Because the message of Islam leads to eternal damnation and separation from God, the message of biblical Christianity leads to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, Jesus was not merely a prophet in the long line of prophets with Muhammad being the culmination and the climax. Certainly Jesus was a prophet in the sense that he was a spokesman for God to give out the word of God, but Jesus was more than that. He was and is the very word of God as we saw in John 1. He is the only way to eternal life. That sounds narrow, doesn't it? It sounds very narrow. It is, 
Because in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Nothing could be more narrow than that. It is so narrow. It is so narrow that Jesus didn't even say that there are only a few ways to get to God. He said there is only one way, and he is it. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive way to God and the exclusive path to eternal life. He backed up that claim by rising from the dead. No other religious leader ever rose from the dead. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Krishna didn't rise from the dead. Confucius didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Jesus did because he is God. Look at what he himself said in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Go back to the Gospel of John again. John, chapter 8, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, and now my translation, and probably most of yours, probably has, if you do not believe that I am he, but hopefully, if your translation reads that way, the word he is italicized, showing that it is not a part of the original. Literal, the literal Greek, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. According to Exodus 3, the personal name of God is Yahweh, or I am. It is not mere coincidence that Jesus phrased this statement like he did. His choice of words was very deliberate. He was saying, if you do not believe that I am God, then you will die in your sins. So I'll say it again. Jesus was not merely a prophet in the long line of prophets, with Muhammad being the culmination and the climax. Jesus was and is God in human flesh. If a person refuses to believe that truth, then according to Jesus, that person will die in his sins. So in light of this truth, in light of what we have seen in this message, How should we respond to Muslims? What should our interaction look like? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we close the message. Back over to the right past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy. We want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll pick it up right near the end in verse 24. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Some translations say, The servant of the Lord must not be argumentative. It's the same idea. A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, but gentle to all. Able to teach. Patient. You see, there's nothing to be gained by arguing with Muslims or even non-Muslims about Islam. As servants of the Lord, we are not to be 
argumentative people. Quarrelsome people. Yes, yes, we should stand for the truth. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Yes, we should contend for the faith. Jude 3, we read it a moment ago. But listen, our demeanor or our personality should not be one that is argumentative. You are not going to win any Muslim into the kingdom. You're not going to argue any Muslim into the kingdom of heaven. Well, you're not going to argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven. But we should know the truth, and we should be able to delineate the truth because verse 24 says we should be able to teach. We should be able to hold out the truth with the last word of this verse, with patience. Then verse 25 says, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. There's the thought again. When we need to disagree with Muslims, and if you get in a conversation with those who are committed to Islam, you're not going to agree. You're not going to agree about God. You're not going to agree about eternal life. So when we need to disagree with Muslims, or anyone for that matter, we should do so with humility. We don't want our abrasiveness to drive them away. If they reject the truth, then we need to make sure that it's because they don't want the truth, not because of our personality. So Paul says in verse 24, don't be argumentative, quarrelsome, be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Now notice verse 26. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Beloved Muslims are ensnared in a satanic false religious system. That's not a put-down of Muslims. The same thing could be said about a lot of religions. It just so happens that we're focusing in this message on distinctions or differences between Islam and Christianity. But that could be said about most religions. Muslims are ensnared in a satanic false religious system. This should not, please hear this, this should not cause us to hate them. That's the wrong response. It's not an untypical American response. It's the wrong response. This should cause us to have compassion for them and to pray for them. And if possible, if in our circle, to engage with them. And Paul says here we should know God's truth on the subject. We should know these distinctions and know what God says so we can humbly teach it to those who will listen to what it says. If by chance, as verse 26 says, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Let's bow together as we close. Father, as we talk about and think about these differences between Islam and Christianity, we, we would never want to do so with uh, an arrogant attitude with a looking down upon or looking down our nose at someone. Because as we just saw in those closing verses of 2 Timothy 2, people who are in false religious systems, whatever they are, 
Islam is by no means the only one. People who are in those are, are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. They're ensnared in error. Ensnared in, in lies. And so it should prompt a compassion from us. It should prompt love from us. Not hatred. Not prejudice. Not arrogant an arrogant stance and looking down upon them. Father, give us the right perspective. Give us the proper perspective. And grant us clarity in our own minds as we think through these just four differences. And as, as, as we know, there are so many others. But Father, these four are so significant. These four are so important. So enable us to, to really grasp these to be able to lock them away, to be able to use your word in conversation, to present the truth humbly, to present the truth gently, to present the truth prayerfully, so that we would see people escape the snare of the devil who have been taken captive by him to do his will. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.